All right, Konasatatu. And uh, I really wish I could be there. I was so looking forward to this, but I understand it is what it is. I don't know if I can handle two years of not having Irish tea and coffee and especially the Irish cream cakes. But, you know, we are all called to bear a cross. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a fair application, but uh, at any rate, uh, this is special. And good to see so many of you on the uh, minutes leading up to this and uh, looking forward to uh, uh, these, uh, these really, you know, times together. May the Lord breathe and give life. It is strange to do it through a, a medium like this, but uh, thankfully we can. I do enjoy uh, preaching uh, with my Crocs on. That's very comfortable. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, I'm looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 7 in the Word of God, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We'll get there in just a moment. I appreciate the song that was just sung. My Mary Lynn sings that in our meetings. It often stirs me to tears because what would we do without that holding power of Jesus? And so uh, precious, especially in these uncertain times that we uh, find ourselves in. But uh, back at the beginning of COVID, which should, uh, I'm going back to like March 2020, God stirred me to look afresh and anew at 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is a verse that I preached on early on when I was in grad school, and I've preached several different sermons on it over the years. I'm sure I've preached on this text there at LifeGate. Uh, this is a different message. Uh, God stirred me as I looked at it again in March of 2020 with a thought that uh, was a little bit different emphasis than what I had seen before. So uh, if you remember the context of this, uh, Solomon is king, and he has taken the materials that David has prepared, and he has built the temple, and it was, it was glorious. It truly was an amazing place. And in chapter six, they have a major celebration. And it's fascinating because at that celebration, the whole nation is gathered. They have a, a large platform for Solomon. And so he's the king. He's the most powerful man on earth at that time, as well as the wisest man, we're told, but literally the most powerful man. And on that platform, he gets down on his knees and he lifts up his hands toward heaven and he prays. Can you imagine one of our world leaders doing that today? Well, that is what happened. The prayer is recorded in chapter six, and uh, it's an amazing prayer. It's, uh, it's actually a long prayer, uh, but he, he, he gives different circumstances. And he says to the Lord, you know, if your people stray from you, if uh, they turn their backs on you and go into idolatry and so forth, and you have to deal with them, even throw them into captivity, if they turn and look back toward this place, the temple, where the mercy seat was, and if they call on you, will you hear them and forgive? So that's the essence of the prayer in chapter six. So we come into chapter seven, and now God is responding, I love that, to Solomon's prayer. So I'll pick it up in verse 12. It says, and the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer. Wonderful words. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. In other words, just as Solomon had prayed, if my people sin against me and I chasten them. And notice the word pestilence in light of our present plague uh, worldwide. Very interesting context. So this is 2020 when I'm studying this. Then verse 14, that very familiar 
but so powerful verse. God is speaking in the first person to Solomon. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Sometimes people wonder when they read this verse, can we apply this? Because this was Old Testament. This was the nation of Israel. But it is very significant, the precision of the inspired words that God himself spoke. He did not say, if Israel. Other times he did. He didn't hear. He said, if my people who are called by my name. And therefore, God himself takes the truth of this promise far beyond the nation of Israel to God's people called by his name in any age, which includes us. That's powerful. But as I was looking at this in March of 2020, the word humble really popped off the page to me. Humble themselves. And so I want to deal with the subject of humility and revival. Lord, I do pray that you'd breathe on us. Thank you for these dear, precious friends. Uh, and uh, Lord, for this time together, Spirit of God, open our eyes. Breathe on us. Manifest the victory of Jesus uh, over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And use the truth to set free, to inspire hope, to nurture faith, to make a difference. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you remember the name Jim Bickle. He was with me at one of the conferences there at this time of year, some years ago. In January of 2019, I received an email from him. It was actually an email from his sister to him that he was forwarding to me. His sister attends the Bible Baptist Church in York, Pennsylvania. I've never been there, uh, but it's an independent Baptist church. And uh, she uh, was writing to him about what God was doing. They were in a, a meeting with a, an older preacher by the name of Benny Beckham. I've only met uh, Benny Beckham by way of phone. He called me about 10 years ago. Uh, his wife, uh, some years before that, had passed away after many years of his pastoring in Georgia, uh, the state of Georgia in the United States. And then he uh, went itinerant and he preaches on prayer. So he is at this church for a meeting and what he speaks on his prayer, they tell me he speaks with a very soft spoken voice and uh, uh, that's who their preacher was. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you, because I don't want to mess it up, what Jim Bickle's sister is emailing him. Uh, at this point, they're three weeks into the meeting. That alone is remarkable. She says, the meetings are amazing. Our church has never seen anything like it. We are in our third week of meetings every night. Now, let me just stop right there. In the United States, in what we call independent Baptist churches, that's amazing. <laughs> this doesn't just happen. Uh, I thank God for what he does in other denominations, uh, but this was very unusual to hear this in our own ranks. Then she says, after she talks about uh, the third week of meetings, she said, they often go till 1030. So here's an, another amazing thing that, uh, that the, the services are literally going to 1030 at night. I mean, this is just not what they do, especially in the North. Now, in the camp meetings in the South, they might be used to this in American culture in the South, but not in the North at all. So this is very much out of the ordinary is what I'm trying to stress. She says the altar is filled with broken hearts. Uh, she's referring to people coming and getting on their faces before God. 
at the end of the service. She says, the testimonies of conviction of sin are spoken openly. Now, again, in the North, in the United States, that's very unusual. That would be kind of like uh, open testimonies in Europe, <laughs> a very similar kind of contextual feel. Uh, she said, there is so much weeping and also rejoicing. It truly is a deep stirring by the spirit of God. We don't want it to end. All right, so that was January 28th, 2019. I received that email. Now, let me jump to a second email. It's now February the 7th, a couple of weeks later, 2019. Uh, Jim Bickle again is forwarding me an email from his sister. She says, we are in our fourth week with Brother Beckham. God is moving in our hearts in a mighty way. Souls are being saved, sin being confessed and forsaken. That's a very significant statement. Families and relationships being restored. Now, that's huge because there's broken relationships all over the place. Then she says the love of God is permeating the place. Now, when do you hear of that description describing our churches? The love of God is permeating the place. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Most nights we don't get home till near midnight. Okay, remember in the third week it was 10:30. Now they're going to midnight. You know, why is time lost when God's presence is manifest? It's because God is the great I am. And when we are in his felt presence, his manifest presence, obviously he's omnipresent, but when we are made aware of his presence, you're in the presence of the I am. And when that's the case, there's no time. And I believe that's why time is lost in these kinds of settings. And so she says the uh, services are going to midnight. She says the whole church calendar of scheduled events has been canceled. In other words, the Holy Spirit has just taken over. Now, there's a time, obviously, to have plans and schedules, but there's a time to bow to the Holy Spirit taking over if that's what happens. She said other church folk, in other words, other churches, have been hearing and attending the services. The altars are full every night. There's freedom to go forward at any time. It is an amazing movement of the Holy Spirit. His presence is so real so powerful. Well, then a few weeks later, I got another email from Jim. This is not a forwarded email. It's from Jim himself. He had gone to see his sister. They met halfway. Jim's in New York City. Uh, she's in central PA. And this is his impressions of actually meeting with his sister as she's in this move of God. She said, I had lunch with my sister, Carol. They are in their seventh week. I love this. And that doesn't have to happen to say you've had revival. It's just what happened in this story. It is thrilling. They are in their seventh week of every night meetings at their church. The spirit of God has been moving through the people's lives like waves rolling over the seashore. Many have been saved and many others have been put right with God. Younger fathers in the congregation have been convicted and been delivered from porn addiction. Even children are broken and have been crying out in the prayer meetings for loved ones and friends to be saved. As she was sharing, she could hardly keep the tears from flee freely flowing. Jim says there's a real humble, tender, and quiet spirit among the people. From what I gather, she said they have put large trash containers, rubbish containers up front. And every night people bring things from home that they need to purge from their lives and put them into the trash cans. 
She said, during the services, people spontaneously come forward and pour out their heart in prayer while the preacher is still preaching. I've only seen that happen once. They are specifically crying out for the lost now. After the messages, they have an open mic for anyone to share what the Lord is currently doing in their hearts. I give you that account because that's recent. That's just two years ago. And it's uh, very significant in the context of the United States because most of what's happened here has been other denominations. And then when it began to start happening among uh, uh, Baptists, it was the Baptists of the South, uh, which are sometimes criticized by the Northerners, I hate to say that, as being uh, camp meeting culture. And they think it's just worked up emotions. Now we need to understand something. Uh, you, can, you can work up emotions and that can be false, but when God moves, there's gonna be emotions. So that's not the test. The test is 1 John 4. Does it point people to Jesus? Does it point people to the word of God? And is the love of God flowing? Those are your three major tests. And so there were some things in the South in 2016, both in North Carolina and in West Virginia, that were powerful moves of the Spirit. But this was the first account in the 21st century that I had been made aware of in the North, as well as among people very like-minded to ourselves. So I was greatly encouraged. So what is that? When you read that account, you find out as you study more that they had been seeking God for 10 years, asking God to move, asking God to breathe, asking God to manifest his presence, to pour out his spirit. And uh, in that account, of course, God did. Now, as I come back to our text, when the scripture says, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, that looks like there's four conditions. Other texts seem to make it look like three. Some texts make it look like two. <laughs> and yet there are texts that make it look like one, like in James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what is it? And what are these conditions? If they're anything other than faith, we'll never make it. If the burden is on us to somehow perform well enough and be holy enough, uh, we're in trouble. But all of the conditions, whether they're stated as one or four, are expressions of faith. And what really hit me as I was looking at this text in March of 2020, so almost two years ago now, is that humble themselves is really the biggie. And it's the major expression of faith. If you read Ron, or excuse me, uh, Andrew Murray's a little book, uh, Humility, you see that it, it's it's at its core, it's faith. But the other three uh, conditions here are really outflows of the condition of humble themselves, and they're all expressions of faith. So the question for us, as we look at the word of God tonight, pave the way for what we'll look at tomorrow, are we willing, that is, are you, am I, are we willing to humble ourselves? before the Lord. What does that mean? Uh, the world is in disarray. Things are strange. There's upheaval everywhere. Um, some countries handling it better than others. You've got countries like Myanmar, where my dear friends have lost over 150 preachers to COVID and uh, lost others to the civil war uh, that have been in the line of a bullet fire. And there's chaos in some places. And the reality is, 
we need the Lord. We always need the Lord, but it's times like this that make us feel our need of the Lord, perhaps in a greater way. So what does it mean to humble ourselves? Well, let's look at these other three phrases and it'll begin to unfold. First of all, there's heart cry. In our text, it says the word pray. So humble themselves. How do you do that? First of all, pray. Now, I use the term heart cry because I think you and I both know we can say prayers, and if we're not careful, get mechanical to the point that we're just rattling off a ritual. Uh, there are certain prayers that I haven't tried to memorize, but I've prayed them enough that I have memorized them. And if I'm not careful, I can just be rattling off words, and then there'd be no transaction of faith taking place at all. So that's why I'm using the term heart cry, where there is that desperate awareness that God has to get in this equation or we're in trouble. And there is something about lifting your voice and audibly crying out, casting this burden on the God that can move us out of that mechanical ritualism into a genuine transaction of faith, a transaction of depending on God to do what only God can do. Heart cry. So back when I'm studying this, this is March 2020, I received a phone call from a dear friend of mine named Billy Waters. I don't think you folks know him. He pastors in Tennessee. I've met him a couple of times. Our hearts immediately resonated. Uh, he, uh, he has a passion for revival, a passion to see the Lord displayed. And I hadn't heard from him in several years. And out of the blue, I get this phone call. And I can tell the entire time on the call, maybe a 20, 25-minute call, he's on the verge of tears. He's on the verge of just having the tears flow. I could sense it in his voice. And uh, here we were in the midst of COVID. Nobody knew what was going on and what to do. And that's not really what he talked about. He said, John, I got to tell you something. He said, you know, I pastor here, but uh, he said, once in a while, I get invited to preach a revival meeting somewhere. He said, last fall. So this would have been um, October of 2019. He said, I got invited to a church in Colorado. He said, it's a small church. I got invited to preach a revival meeting there. And he said, the Lord burdened my heart to preach the entire meeting on stories, accounts of God's reviving presence. He said, so every service I told an account, maybe several accounts. And he said, nothing dramatic happened, but I was just telling these stories because I believe that's what God told me to do. And so night after night, I'm telling more stories of God moving. Uh, in other words, stories like the one I gave you just a moment ago in your PA, that kind of thing. And he's pulling them out of history books and his own experience and so on. And then he said on the last night, he said, I told them a story about a revival in New York State uh, connected to the name Charles Finney. Finney at that time in the 1830s was really being used of God. And there was a city where God was moving powerfully. And uh, there were some teenagers that were burdened that God moved in their town. And they had come a distance to find Mr. Finney, Charles Finney, and ask him to consider coming to their town to preach uh, so that God would move there. That was their burden. So Finney looked at these teenage boys, I love it, lads, and he says to them, all right, if you promise me you'll pray three times a day for God to come to your town, when God releases me to come, I will come. So with their hearts encouraged, they went back to their town and they began to pray a minimum of three times a day for God uh, to come to their town for God to release Charles Finney so that he could come and declare the truth and for the presence of God to be real. 
Well, sure enough, in due time, God released Charles Finney to go, and the Spirit of God moved in that town, and there was a great revival. Well, Billy Waters told that story to this little church in Colorado, and he said, now I'm getting ready to leave. He said, the meeting's about over. And he said, I've enjoyed being here. He said, here's my challenge for you. He said, how many of you would be willing to take to set aside the next 30 days? This is just how the Lord led him to frame this. The next 30 days, and would you pray three times a day? He said, perhaps when your feet hit the floor in the morning, perhaps at the noon hour, and then when you just before you pillow your head at night. That's how he worded it. And he asked them, would you do this next 30 days? Would you pray three times a day for God to come to your town, for God to move in your church? So a number of them decided they would do that. He told them, now, if at the end of 30 days, nothing happens, he said, just go back to normal. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we will just go on with life. He said, if, however, there is the glimpse of God moving, he said, keep praying. And now as he's on the phone talking to me, telling me this account, he is really about to break down in tears. And he said, John, he said, before the 30 days was over, he said, I began to get phone calls from the dear people in that church telling me what God was doing and the presence of God in their church, and people from the town that nobody invited showing up, and uh, lost people getting saved, and uh, there was a moving of God in revival in that church, October 2019. Fascinating. Fascinating. All of these accounts have somebody who cried out. Heart cry. I think of the account in India, in 1930 at a school that was for the missionary kids as well as kids in the town. So they had many lost kids in the school, 130 students. And in a very few short period, a few days and a short period of time, they had a movement of God that was so powerful. The students came under conviction and 100 students professed Christ. 80 of them uh, followed the Lord in baptism. The faculty and staff were thrilled at what had happened but they had no idea why it had happened because obviously they were not the intercessors in this case. Then they found out there were three boys, the age of 12 that had regularly been meeting at the edge of the jungle and saying, God, we need you to come to our school. God, we have so many classmates, schoolmates that don't know you. They're from these pagan backgrounds. God, we need your presence. And God heard the cry of three boys the age of 12. In our present world, in the dilemma of the last two years, there are a lot of prayer meetings. There's movements of God in the Middle East that are very powerful. The fastest growing church in the world is in the country of Iran right now. There are amazing things happening in um, amazing places. But I find that the cultures that are the most comfortable in our lifestyles, and I'm not condemning that, God prospered Abraham, he prospered Job, and that doesn't have to be wrong, but I find that those of us who find ourselves in comfortable settings have a harder time realizing we need God. We need God to step down from heaven. Our world now is almost 8 billion. And the, the numbers of the last hundred years is just, it's incredible. 
And the reality is, um, without a great awakening and a great harvest, hell will double quickly. But with a great awakening, heaven will double. And is it not significant that Peter says under inspiration that God delays, that Jesus delays his coming, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? So I ask us, are we willing in our comfortable cultures? I mean, yeah, things are a mask, COVID, a mask, and have to do a conference on Zoom. I get that. But we're still comfortable. We're not meeting in the woods like my dear friends are in Myanmar and having gospel meetings out in these refugee camps. We're still comfortable. That's not a problem unless we let that sab our conscience to not call on God. Our world needs God. Western culture, if it has ever needed God, it needs God now. And so the first expression of humility here is heart cry. And quite honestly, I'm under great conviction about this because it's so easy to just, you know, go on with life because we can and not really recognize the dire need we are in of seeing God move afresh and anew. Historically, it's always times of declension that precede the times of great reviving if somebody cries out in the spirit and prays. So there's heart cry. Secondly, there's God pursuit. It goes on to say, and seek my face. The word face is the same word translated presence in Isaiah 64 when Isaiah cried out, oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. That's the same word that here is translated face. You see, God's the answer here. We're in need. That's, that's obvious. But God's the answer. God himself. And so the focus here is on a person. It's not on a meeting that goes seven weeks. It's not on, you know, services that go till midnight. It's not on after meetings like we had in 2000. No, the focus is on a person. And God knows when he manifests his presence, what the details should look like and how that will impact us. That's up to him. But we must have the reality of the presence of God. You know, when Peggy and Christine Smith back there on Lewis prayed for God to move in uh, 49, they were burdened because it had already been a decade since they'd seen the last movement. And they knew that there was a new generation that did not know the power of the 1939 revival, which most of us don't know about, but there was one. Uh, then you had the 49 revival. Well, they were burdened because uh, as years go by, you have a whole new group that doesn't know. That's why one of the men during the Second Great Awakening uh, on the eastern seaboard of the United States, uh, I think it was Timothy Dwight, could have been uh, one of the other men who uh, was the uh, president of a, a college. He asked God to pour out his spirit at least once every four years so that every group of students, thinking of a four-year degree, would know the powerful presence of God when he pours out his spirit. And so it's seeking God. See, when all of a sudden you come face to face with God, everything's different. Because when the atmosphere is hindered by the powers of the air, then yeah, we can preach, we can have our services, but there's all this interference and, and a, not a whole lot penetrates. 
But when God cuts through the powers of the air, when he rends the heavens, and the powers of darkness are banished, and the power of the Spirit is manifest, with no interference in the atmosphere, that's when truth goes in. That's when the Word of God has free course and is given its full weight and comes down on hearts. And that's why in some accounts, people cry out for mercy, because with no interference in the atmosphere by the enemy and the truth hitting you with what it really is, truth, it can truly impact the human frame. And so we read this in some of these accounts. And that is powerful when that happens. My son uh, is now 19. Last summer, he was at a camp. And uh, it's a camp in Michigan. And uh, evangelist Dave Young was preaching. And uh, he preached a message on purity. Always an appropriate subject uh, with really any age and certainly with youth. But it was more than a message on purity. Somebody must have prayed because God moved in that atmosphere. Several teenagers from my church, Ann Arbor Baptist Church, told one of the youth workers, God was in the room. Now, you just need to understand, our teenagers don't really talk that way. And that lets me know God was in the room. In other words, they were in and out pouring. My son called me on Friday of that week and said, Dad, he said, I, 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 think I'm in a, I think I'm in a revival. And he began to describe what was going on. And the presence of God was so real. I mean, they were coughing up sin. They were dealing with things. God on the move. And it was a radical turning point for many. You see, that's what we need. We need God. You know, every time we meet, in the measure that's appropriate, we need the presence of God. God knows there are times when we need a more intense sense of his presence, those seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. We're to be filled with the Spirit all the time, Ephesians 5.18. The outpouring is not necessarily continuous. It is called seasons, time, seasons of refreshing. It's just like in the physical world. you got to have your rain. you got to have times when it stops raining so you can bring in the harvest. And the same is true spiritually, but we need a season. Of refreshing. We need God in the room. I think of my dear friends in Iowa, the Vanderharts, who uh, I barely knew in 2003. I'd been there once just on a Sunday morning, and now I was back for a, a week-long revival meeting. It was August of 2003, and uh, the pastor comes and meets me after I set up uh, my uh, RV, and he says, now you need to know something. He said, there's about 15 people in the church that have a burning heart. Now, he did not explain what that meant. It was not heartburn. <laughs> uh, it was a burning heart. That's, that was his expression. He says, no, it's not the whole church. He said, but there's about 15 people with a burning heart. And I had no idea what he meant by that. But by the end of Sunday, I could see the burning faces, the radiant countenances, the hungry hearts. I found out later that a year or so before, the church had gone through tremendous trial and had lost a lot of people, a lot of people. A lot of teenagers, a lot of church folk, and uh, it was very discouraging, very depressing. And the assistant pastor, the youth pastor, the actually the pastor's son, uh, was very discouraged because of all that had happened. And he picked up the book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And God ignited fire in his heart. He passed, this to, passed it to his dad. The fire spread. They passed it to a few more. 
and the fire spread. And they started meeting on Saturday mornings and they called it the fellowship of the burning heart. That's what he was talking about. I didn't know that till later. By Sunday night, I could see the faces. I was pummeled with questions, pummeled with questions, Sunday night, Monday night after the service. I mean, hungry hearts, incisive questions, uh, questions you don't ask unless you are pursuing God. Well, that's what they were doing. Well, on Wednesday, before the service, the assistant pastor, he's now the pastor there, the pastor's son comes to me, really a man of few words, and he says to me, I don't know him well at this time, this is before the service, we're just getting ready for me to walk up forward and sit down in the service to start. He said, John, God is going to do something very special tonight. And he walked away. And that night, God led us to have an after meeting. That's just how God led. God can move without an after meeting, but this is how he led. A number of the folks stayed and God came. And the presence of God was so real. Time was lost. Sin was confessed because when you see God for who he is, you see sin for what it is. And many people were flat on their face on the floor. And that happened the next night. And then the next night. And uh, that church uh, experienced really in the next several years, a, a radical change because God had come. You see, to humble ourselves starts with crying out, God, we're in need. But it continues with God, you're the answer. It's pursuing God himself. Oh, how we need God, his reality in our lives. This God who's with us at all times, for us to be made aware of the fact that he actually is and that he is sufficient for everything and all the trials that we face. So humble themselves, first heart cry, second God pursuit. And then finally, there's honesty, there's confession, there's surrender. There's a number of words we could use here. The text says, and turn from their wicked ways. The idea is not that if you're good enough for long enough, God will do something because we never earn. It's that humility that says, God, we need you. And this sin is in the way. This attitude is in the way. This ambition is in the way. And God, I surrender that up to you. See, that's what we're talking about. That's that honest surrender, that confession. God, this is in the way. And I don't want it in the way. I wonder, friends, as we come into 2022, is there anything in the way of you and I knowing a greater reality of God that we, than we've ever known? I think of a, an account from the 1960s from a lady by the name of Evelyn Christensen. Her husband was a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, she and two other ladies got burdened for their church, and they decided they would meet on Thursdays uh, for an hour to pray for their church. So the first Sunday, or not for Sunday, the first Thursday they met, uh, they said, well, you know, if we're going to pray, uh, shouldn't we have a verse? And they said, well, you know, that's a good idea. And one of the ladies said, well, why don't we use Psalm 66, 18? That's the scripture that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, don't misunderstand the verse. It doesn't say if I have iniquity, it's if I regard it. In other words, if I know I have it, but I'm not willing to deal with it. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So they started by praying, Lord, 
is there anything in our own hearts that would hinder you from hearing us because we want to pray for our church? And God began to show some, some, some things in their own hearts, and they began to confess it. And so the first hour that day, they never got to pray for the church. They confessed their sins uh, because it's just what happened as God moved. God showed them this and then showed them that. And the next week, they met again. They started again saying, Lord, is there anything else that we missed? And God showed them some other things. Evelyn says they went for six miserable weeks. <laughs> I love her uh, description here. Six weeks of never getting to pray for the church. Six weeks of God just dealing with them, dealing with them about very fine-tuned things. For example, Evelyn said that she had a Sunday school class and she would prepare a, a, a handout and God convicted her because when she gave out the handout, she would normally say, here's what I have prepared for you. And she would leave God out of the equation and not give God the glory. And so it was that kind of fine-tuned conviction that these ladies were experiencing. Well, on the sixth week, before the hour was up, there was no more sin to confess. And by the way, when there's not any more sin confessed, don't keep confessing because now you're faking it. <laughs> there was nothing left. And so the Spirit of God released them to pray for the church, which is what they wanted to do six weeks prior. And so they did. God, would you move in our church? Would you revive our church? Would you do something that would send uh, uh, your spirit to our people in a way that we see a harvest and souls are saved? And it was not a dramatic prayer meeting. There was no thunder. There was no lightning. Uh, it was not uh, uh, this prayer meeting that, ooh, there was this mysterious sense. No, they just were now right with God and they prayed. <laughs> God, would you move in our church and would you revive us? And would you awaken the lost? Something along those lines. Well, the next Sunday, so that's Thursday, the next Sunday, Evelyn's husband preached. He normally, in the typical American fashion, would give an invitation, uh, but he didn't that day. He didn't feel like he should and invite people to come and make a decision for Christ. He just said, let's close in prayer. And as he's closing, there was a hippie. Now, some of you might know what a hippie is, but in the 1960s, there was this group uh, called the Hippies, and uh, they were revolting against authority and so forth, but they were hungry. They were searching, and uh, that really set the stage for the Jesus movement and for there to be a great revival. Well, this hippie comes down the, uh, the, the, the aisle, and of course, he looked very different than everybody else, and he said, well, wait, pastor, you can't close. I've got to get saved. <laughs> And that was the first of a great harvest for the next six months. The church was revived with the life of Jesus, clothing them inside and out. And lost people began to get saved. They saw a ton of hippies get saved and uh, uh, a tremendous move. Well, that's what God does. See, those ladies were crying out. They were pursuing God and they got honest. They surrendered whatever issue it was, even if it seemed something you could argue about. If the Spirit of God convicted them, they say, okay, God, no more argument. I give that up. We need you. And God cleansed them. You see, God blesses faith. All of these are expressions of faith. When you pray and you're casting your dependence on God, that's faith. When you're pursuing God, seek my face. God, you're the answer. See, that's faith. And when God convicts you that there's something in the way and you get honest about it and agree with God so the blood of Jesus can rush in and clean you up, as 1 John 1, to, uh, uh, 7 and 9 talks about. See, all of that's faith. God blesses faith. There is a certain sense where he doesn't bless anything else. <laughs> it's only the obedience that flows from faith 
that's the issue because without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now with faith, yes, there'll be steps like the heart cry, the God pursuit, the honesty, but there'll be steps of faith. And that's what God blesses. It's not a matter of earning. It's a matter of faith. And faith is not a work. Faith depends on the worker, God himself. And then God works. Well, as I was studying all this, the Lord brought across my attention a parallel passage. You don't need to turn there, but you may have noticed that there are accounts in Chronicles that are also in Kings. And there is a parallel account of what we have in chapter six and chapter seven here, also in 1 Kings 8. But the wording over there is very interesting. It says, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man. So there the application is also given specifically to one person, not just a group. That's interesting. Or by all the people. So either way, just one person or many. Then it says, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart. And God spoke to me. Friends, do we know the plague of our own heart? Here I was at the beginning of COVID, a plague. And God says, those who pray, those who supplicate, cry out, and know, in other words, get honest about the plague of their own heart. That's when God steps in. Are we aware of the plague in our own heart? When John Avant saw God move in 1995 in Texas, the 1995 revivals, they affected three denominations. It started when God dealt with John Avant about the plague in his own heart, his wrong ambitions, his desire to pastor a big church and all of that. And instead of uh, his desire for God and what God wants and so forth. So as we begin a new year, what an appropriate text, isn't it? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, heart cry, and seek my face, God pursuit, and turn from their wicked ways, honesty, surrender, conf confession, then God promises, will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin See those seeking and will heal their land. Probably all of us have some land in our individual lives and in our families, perhaps in the church, where we need divine healing. I'm not just talking physical, I'm talking about we need that balm of Gilead from God that heals relationships, heals hearts, those that think they're never accepted by God when that's not true at all, and so forth. And so let's get honest about any plague in our own heart, and let's seek the Lord, and let's let God do what God does in 2022. All right, thank you. God bless you.